Glad you're here with us today. Last week, I introduced for us a series that we are going to be in for a few years now called, uh, based on the, the Gospel of Luke. But it's going to be so extensive that we're essentially breaking it up into three different series, is what I told you, uh, and we'll spend the first part of this series looking at the person of Jesus, and then we'll take a break, and the next part of it we'll be looking at the purpose of Jesus, His mission, and we'll take a break, and then we'll look at the last piece of it, the passion of Jesus, focusing on the last week of His life. But I, I lied a little bit last week because there's actually four series to all of this because the Gospel of Luke opens with the most familiar and arguably the most beloved passage, passages focusing on the advent of Christ that exists in our Bible. So today we begin a, kind of a fourth series under the heading of Luke, and we've titled it, Do Not Be Afraid. Now, why that sentiment? Uh, why that title? Because of what we see, really, in the traditional Christmas, Christmas passages that, that open Luke. In, in three of the four big, uh, for lack of a better word, Christmas scenes in Luke 1 and 2, we actually hear uh, that sentiment of not being afraid three different times. Luke 1.13, do not be afraid. Luke 1.30, do not be afraid. Uh, Luke 2.10, fear not. Now, to be fully transparent, those three phrases are spoken by an angel to folks who are completely freaked out that an angel is in front of them talking. But there's actually more behind those words than just the stark terror of suddenly being confronted by a supernatural being. There are fears underneath those words with which all of us non-angel seers can identify. And perhaps the one most common is seen in the life of the man whose story opens Luke. If you would please find Luke chapter 1, verse 5, and having found it, or as you find it, would you stand please to honor the reading of God's Word this morning from Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. He had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. May God add a blessing to the reading of His Word. You may be seated. So as Luke opens, we are introduced to this faithful priest named Zechariah, his godly wife, Elizabeth, and we are told that they are facing a tragic situation. Elizabeth has been unable to conceive. She is said to be barren. And while there could always be a hope that this situation might rectify itself in the lives of younger people, we are also told that Zechariah and Elizabeth are too old for childbearing. Now, to be sure, there may have been some wisp of hope about their situation because God in the Old Testament actually visits people in their exact same circumstance and provides for them a child. In fact, childlessness of an older couple is what anchors the plot of the Old Testament, one could argue the entire Bible. But that was by far the exception of what God did and not the rule. So keep that in mind as we continue to read verse 8. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, 
when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Now, as 21st century readers, uh, those words can have some obscurity to them because we are not familiar with the customs that are being described here. So let me do my best to kind of compress that and get you a, a framework for understanding it. The priests of the nation of Israel were divided into 24 divisions, and each division would serve uh, two separate weeks each year. That service would include performing the sacrifices of the temple uh, of, of people who were coming to worship there, but also included the daily routine of offering incense after the morning and evening sacrifices with the rising smoke of the incense symbolizing the prayers of the people going up to God. And so the offering of the incense at these two times of day also were public calls to morning and evening prayer. Now, special honor for any priest was to lead the offering of the incense to God. The priest leading this offering is chosen by Lot, which again, to kind of be indelicate, uh, but to explain it, it, it it's essentially the, the casting of dice that it was believed that the Lord controlled. Many priests would go their entire lives and never receive this honor. And if you did receive this honor, you would only get it that one time. So Zechariah is literally having a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And it is while he is praying before the altar, and the people in turn are outside praying, that the unexpected happens. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled, you think, when he saw him and fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb." And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, there is a lot going on there, and we could spend the rest of our morning literally just talking about the detail that is underneath the words that we just read. But I just want to focus on one thing, something that is impossible for us to know in English versions of this text is the Hebrew meaning of Zechariah's name. Zechariah's name in Hebrew means the Lord remembers. And in the pronouncement of a son to be born to Zechariah and Elizabeth, God has shown that he remembers this childless couple and that this child would have a special mission to be the forerunner of the Messiah and to prepare the people for his appearing. So God has also remembered the promises that he has made to his people Israel. This child's name, Zechariah is told, will be John, or as he is known in his adult years, John Baptist, middle name The. So what is Zechariah's response? Look at verse 8. How shall I know this? 
For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? That seems like a perfectly reasonable question for him to ask at first blush. Zechariah has just been told that not only that he and Elizabeth were going to have a son, but this son was to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Zechariah and Elizabeth were past the age of childbearing, and with Rome's global dominance on the rise, it really seemed like a strange time to send the Messiah to a forgotten little nation like Israel. Zechariah says, how shall I know this? Again, seems perfectly reasonable, but there's a bite to it that's not evident to us. It's the reason I read it as I read it a moment ago. The words are literally in accordance with what? Spoken like that. In accordance with what? Meaning, I don't believe you. So what besides your word can you give me? I want you to think about that. You may not know this, but the, the word angel literally means messenger. So the angel was delivering him a message from God. So Zechariah is not just saying, I don't take you at your word, angel. He's saying, I don't take God at his word. He's saying, prove it. Well, be careful what you ask for. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, here's your sign. You will be silent and unable to speak until that day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. You want a proof? Here's your proof. You've just been given the news for which you, Elizabeth, and the nation have been praying your entire lives. And you are not going to be able to tell anybody about it. You're going to be mute, which in the language of the New Testament meant more than simply being unable to speak. It also meant to be deaf, and that comes out a little later in Luke chapter 1. So in essence, Zechariah parents in the room got placed in time out. The title of today's message is Doubter. Do not be afraid. And it is at this point in the story where you might say, uh, there's nothing here to encourage me in my doubts. In fact, to this point in the story, your natural inclination might be to keep your mouth shut concerning any doubts that uh, you have experienced over time. To those in this room who read of God's miraculous works in both the Old and New Testament and say, really? You read about deaf and mute Zechariah, and you think, keep your mouth shut. To those who read the promises of God's Word, that He will watch over us and will provide for our needs and will hear our prayers and quietly say, really? You read about deaf and mute Zechariah and think, keep your mouth shut. To those that read that God is mighty to save and able to save to the uttermost, those who draw near to God through Christ Jesus and look at the unbelievable and hidden sin in your life 
and quietly say, really? He can save me? You read about deaf and mute Zechariah and say to yourself, keep your mouth shut. In fact, we've got a whole church culture built around pushing people to hide in their doubts, to play along and go along, to keep questions to yourself. And then on the other side, we've got an ex-evangelical culture being built online that views doubt as something of a virtue for crying out loud. But Zechariah's story to this point clearly shows us that doubt is not a virtue. It is not something to aspire to, but... The rest of the story shows us that the same God who confronts faithless doubts overwhelms those same doubts with His mercy and His grace. Jump ahead to Isaiah 57, Isaiah 157, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean here. Look at verse 57. Now, the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her just as the angel said that they would. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother said, no, he shall be called John. Uh, Zechariah had been able to communicate that to her. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted them, him to be called. That, that's an indication of his deafness. Uh, you would get if he needed a sign to communicate, but they need a sign to communicate to him. He could not hear, nor could he speak. And so he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. You see, something happened in Zechariah's noiseless and voiceless timeout. God went to work. You see, when we view Zechariah's muteness as punishment, we overlook that God fulfilled his work anyway. Zechariah responded to the best news he personally and Israel nationally have ever been given with cynicism. I don't believe you. Prove it. But God didn't say, as you and I might say, were we to give someone a really great gift that they reject, fine. You don't believe me? You don't get it. No. He allowed this old couple to conceive. The, the noiseless Voiceless timeout wasn't punishment. It was God putting him in a situation to experience the reality of Psalm 46.10. You know what that says? Be still and know that I am God. So with his ears opened and his tongue loosed, Zechariah tells us what he has learned about doubt and about God in the verses that close out chapter 1. In those verses, Zechariah tells us first that God conquers our doubts by keeping His promises. Look at verse 67. And Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited and redeemed His people 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Zechariah begins his song not by focusing on his son, but by blessing God for the work that the Messiah, whom his son would proclaim, would do. And it's all couched in the, in the language of rescue, in the language of promise-keeping. This would have been an easy concept for those listening to him to grasp. They were hopeless in their situation unless God kept his promises. Zechariah proclaims in these verses that what was going on in his life was God keeping his promises to Israel. Did you catch all of the allusions to the past promises of God in those verses that I just read? The Messiah has been promised by the prophets of old and to our fathers. God was acting to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. It had been a long time coming, certainly. It had at times seemed like God had indeed forgotten he'd made these promises. But Zechariah's prove-it attitude had been overwhelmed as God in his time abundantly did exactly what he'd promised for centuries to do. Now, here's the thing. Zechariah should have known better. He had proclaimed the truths of God to God's people for years. He had ministered in God's name for his entire life. But without him knowing it, the promises of God had become nothing more than pretty, empty words. Without knowing it, a man whose life was devoted to proclaiming the truths about God had started to doubt the truths that he proclaimed. Disappointment can make you do that. A childless couple looking out at a world of families, especially out here in the suburbs, can begin to doubt God's promise of care and compassion to them in their pain. That surely happened on some level to Zechariah and Elizabeth. But a lifetime of experiencing God's care for him should have been enough for Zechariah to know that God was faithful to him, even if children were never meant to be a part of the equation. Listen, it's easy to start doubting God when we focus on that area of our lives that is amiss instead of focusing on the parts of our lives where God's presence and mercy are there in abundance. Zechariah had to have a time out. He had to be still before he could know that God was God and faithful to his promises. If a deep well of pain has started to darken your vision of God, Force yourself to be still and look at all of the ways in your life that God has kept His promises. Doing so will help you see that God is going to be faithful to you even if the pain and the fear and the loss that you are feeling is not going to magically go away. Let God conquer your doubt 
by seeing all of the ways that he has kept his promises to you. God conquers doubt by promises kept. God conquers our doubts also by giving us purpose. I want you to look at the final words of the chapter, verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. In verse 76, the focus of the song is the task that Zachariah's child would perform for the Messiah. And that task is found in verse 77. What Zachariah's child, John, would do is to bring people to the knowledge that salvation doesn't require effort. It requires mercy. Mercy. I love how Zechariah's song describes God's grace. The sunrise from on high that shines upon those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That's what the coming of the Savior is. The light of God's mercy giving light to a world that by its own sinful design is plunged into darkness. And Zechariah's son will prepare the people for the dawn of God's grace. His son had a divine purpose. But don't overlook that Zechariah's seasons of doubt ended with him coming to the realization that he too had purpose. He too was preparing the way for people to have knowledge of God's mercy by proclaiming the good news that God had given him. Here's what I believe. I believe with all of my heart. I believe that Zechariah could have emerged from the temple after his encounter with the angel with this song on his lips, but instead he doubted. And in doubting, he was rendered mute, not because he had nothing to say, but because In his doubt, he wasn't in a position to say it. The same is true for us when we doubt God's promises and presence. It's not that we have nothing to say to a sin-darkened world. It's just that in our doubt, we can't say it. This is the reason, perhaps more than any other, why doubt is not a virtue. We can't even share truth with ourselves when we are gripped with doubt. But God conquers our doubt by reminding us that we do have something to say, and that something to say is our life's purpose. So God conquers our doubt by keeping His promises and by giving us a purpose. But ultimately, God conquers doubt. And this is is a ball game right here. This is what it's all about. God conquers our doubts by sending Jesus. If we ever doubt God, we only need to remember that. Now, I suspect that most folks believe that doubt isn't a preacher's problem. But if our text today on the experience of a doubting priest named Zechariah hasn't convinced you that even religious professionals at times go through seasons of doubt, perhaps my personal experience will help you see that that's true never shared this with anyone before the last service. Before preparing for this 
a message I'd never committed it to paper, but on an Easter Sunday, a little over 20 years ago, I was in the office of the church I pastored in a small town in northwestern Oklahoma. And I was reviewing my sermon notes for Easter and rereading the Easter sermon text, which that day happened to come from Luke 23 and 24. And while I was doing so, I experienced what was the most acute and profound episode of doubt that I had ever experienced to that time or have experienced since. Out of literally nowhere, I began to question how any of this could possibly be true. My mind began to construct conspiratorial pathways to explain it all away as a hoax. It was dark, it was intense, and it was deeply spiritual. And the timing was not a coincidence. I was less than an hour away from walking into a packed auditorium to proclaim, He has risen, He has risen indeed. And in that moment, I was a puddle of contradictions and doubt. I couldn't possibly preach that morning's sermon, which was exactly the point of the spiritual attack I was experiencing. But in the following moments, God gently and persuasively conquered my doubt by reminding me of how He had sent Jesus not to save the world, but to save me. I began to reflect on all the ways that God had confirmed for me His presence in my life through Christ. And had done that time and time again. In that little office, God conquered that intense spasm of doubt by reminding me of how he had sent Jesus to me. Zechariah's example in Luke 1 shows us that God's faithfulness to his people in Jesus conquers our doubt. Mired in the disappointment and pain of childlessness and God's delay in fulfilling the promise of the Messiah, Zechariah challenged God to prove it. In accordance with what? Why should I ever believe you? He wasn't the first to doubt God from a pit of despair, and he certainly hasn't been, nor will he be the last. But God allowed him to finally see that sunrise from on high, and this mute cynic erupted in profound words that probably began something like, I've been waiting for over nine months to tell you what happened to me. So, if you were one of the doubters, let me, let me close today with a prayerful challenge, a guided time in prayer meant to help you with any doubts that you today may be experiencing. Would you join me, please, with heads bowed and eyes closed?